0: Well, good evening, church. I think you know the drill. Well, you need a Bible, and you need to have it open to 1 Samuel, chapter 22, because that is God's Word for us. 1 Samuel, chapter 22. So tonight when you go to sleep, how do you know that you'll wake up tomorrow morning as a Christian? What confidence do you have that you will want to read the Bible? Or that you would want to pray or battle sin? Why do you think you'll love Jesus? I mean, can you know... Perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time and so you feel pretty confident. Or perhaps you're arrogant and proud and trust in your willpower. I know I'll love Jesus tomorrow. Maybe you don't care to think about it too much. Well here's here's maybe a better way to frame this question. Do you believe that it's possible to fall away from God? Is it possible to profess faith in Christ and to live some semblance of the Christian life and then turn out to be fake? Of course it is. But how do I know and how do you know that that won't be us? Now I realize that I'm raising lots of questions and I'm not going to answer all these tonight. But I think this gets us going in the right direction. I mean, how do you know that you won't be like Demas? You remember Demas in Paul's letters? For Demas loved this present world, and so he abandoned the apostle. What about Judas or Saul? I believe in the rock-solid perseverance of the saints. That if you are a believer, if you're truly a believer, God has guaranteed and will see to it that no amount of sin and no amount of rebellion can keep you from being saved. Christ is strong to save. He doesn't have sins that he can't get over. He's strong to save. As Jude says in, first, or in chapter two, uh, verse 24, he is able to keep you from stumbling, praise God, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but also believe in the very real danger of falling away from the living God. Why else would Paul say things like this? I made known to you, brothers, the gospel by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. 1 Corinthians 15. Or why would Jesus say, only the one who endures to the end will be saved? Mark thirteen thirteen. Do you feel the tension? You and I are always in danger of falling away from the Lord. And yet... God is always working to complete his work in those who truly trust him. You see, any serious study of Saul's life, which takes up much of First Samuel, must include a serious consideration of the danger of apostasy, falling away from God. That's when one professes faith in Christ at one point, and then later proves that his profession was fake. It was false. The Christian life, my friends, is a very serious business. And so we must be very honest about it. It's hard to grow, isn't it? Certainly there's seasons that it seems like Christian growth is easy. I hope that perhaps you're in a season like that right now. I've had those seasons. But then we've all had those other seasons which it seems so dark. And like there's no progress. You feel like you're sliding away. Our spiritual condition is never static. It's always changing, in a sense. Perhaps a crude way to illustrate this is, I've heard it said that Christian growth is kind of like walking up an escalator in the wrong direction. Did you do that as a, as a teenager? Or as a 20-year-old? Or as a 30-year-old, maybe? It's like walking up in the wrong direction. Like, you're, if you're putting in the effort, you can make some real progress right? Usually. But if you stand still, you will end up going in the wrong direction. You and I are either growing or backsliding. We're either growing or we're not growing. I don't think that's a perfect illustration, but I think it gives, I think it taps in to a biblical idea that our spiritual condition is never static. It's always changing. You aren't standing still. You either grew closer to the Lord today or drifted away. We're either moving towards the Lord or running away from the Lord. I think this is part of what Paul is inferring in Galatians chapter 6 when he says, For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Our story tonight is the story of two sinners. Namely two backsliders, Saul and David. Now I told you last week that we're shifting to talk about David and I might have been one chapter too early in saying that. Uh, We are mostly shifting to talk about David but we've been talking about Saul a lot and we've got kind of this last major scene and one more last kind of tragic hurrah for Saul. But we have been watching him descend further and further into total destruction And tonight is nearly the bottom. Saul is the backslider who is lost. And last week we saw even David, the mighty David, the the picture of faith in so many ways in the Old Testament, the author of so many of the Psalms. We saw even David lose his faith in the Lord and make multiple sinful decisions as he sought safety from the murderous King Saul. But we'll see tonight that he has repented. David is also a backslider who is saved. Saul, the backslider who is lost, David, the backslider who is saved. And it is David who points us to the Savior. And I think that's really the main idea of the text tonight. Sin is dangerous, it's dangerous for believers and unbelievers alike. But there is a savior for backsliders. And for sinners who take refuge in Christ, there is safety. Praise God. Let's read the text in its entirety as we almost always do. Looking down in 1 Samuel chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him there. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became a commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, but depart, and go into the land of Judah. So David departed, and he went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the terebinth tree on the height with his spear in his hand, And his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? And will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day? And then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ithub, And he acquired the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions, and gave him a sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob. And all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Hitub, And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, verse 13, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, Who is among all your servants as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant and to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about at them, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David." And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant... Ox, donkey, and sheep he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitob, named Abathar, escaped and fled, to da- fled after David. And Abathar told David and that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to him, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, and with me you shall be in safe keeping. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have inspired this word, and you've given it to us to consider, to try to understand, to submit to, and to model our life after. You've given it to us for nourishment and hope. You've given it to us to warn us and to correct us and to teach us. So, Father, would you do all those things tonight? That's not something I can do, so would you do it by your Spirit? Make progress in our hearts. So, Father, as always, I pray, please, let my words fall to the ground and blow away and be forgotten. Let your words remain and let them bear fruit in our lives. We plead and we pray. Amen. Let's look at this text in four sections tonight. I hope you were here last week because you would have heard uh, chapter 21, but we'll do a brief review. Four major sections, though. The first section I'm just calling a ragtag kingdom, verses 1 through 5. You'll remember and notice, of course, that we were, were picking up the story right in the middle of a scene. In chapter 21, David is again on the run from King Saul, the current king in Israel. And he stopped in Nob, which is where there was like a priest, a hub of priests. I bet they had lots of books. I think I would have liked it in Nob. He stopped there and he needed some supplies. So he lied and was able to garner bread for him and his men and Goliath's sword. He then fled, because it wasn't safe, to a Philistine city, like that would be safer, walking through Gad, the city of Goliath, wearing Goliath's sword on his belt, which was just as dangerous, right? That didn't go well. So he fled from there and hid in a cave. The danger, the physical danger that David was in, is hard for us to imagine, But the text gives us a clue that it was so pronounced and so real that even David's family moved in to hiding. It wasn't just his family that was fleeing from Saul's regime of terror, but 400 other men joined David. Look down at verse 2. Everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is bitter in soul... That does not sound like the cream of the crop, does it, right? In fact, those are the kind of folks that if they come to to bunk with you in a cave, you probably don't want them there. But the text says that David became commander over them. It's important for us to note that this ragtag band, the distressed, the debtors, and the embittered souls... They were basically the outcasts of society. They were perhaps even criminals. If you're fleeing from your debtor, probably would make you a criminal. And yet they formed the nucleus of this new kingdom. Remember, God has chosen a new king for Israel. David is that new king, and now he is raising up a new people. If you've been joining us on Sunday nights, maybe some of these themes uh, should, they should be triggering in your mind. But this group forms the nucleus of a new kingdom. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. But the next thing that David did in verse 3 was to secure a safe place for his elderly parents. I don't believe that he was shipping them off, right? I would never say that. My mom is here, and I'm so glad that she's here, right? He's not shipping his parents off to Siberia, anything like that. He's he's looking for a place of safety, and he does that strangely by going to the king of Moab, right? Doesn't seem like that would be... Hostile place, right? The Moabites were not exactly friends with Israel, so why would David seek a safe haven for his parents there? Now, we don't have much time to explore this, and I don't want to make too much of this, but I think it's at least interesting to note, probably more than interesting, maybe useful to note, that if you get, again, read genealogies, if you have read David's genealogy, then you'll notice that there is a Moabite. In David's family line. Does anyone know the famous Moabite? Ruth, that's right. Ruth was David's great-grandmother, a Moabitess. And if you remember the story of Ruth and Naomi, you'll remember how God used incredible suffering. The suffering of a grieving mother and her daughter-in-laws, who were basically facing destitution and poverty, and he used them to preserve a whole nation and to establish the family that would eventually produce the babe Christ. Perhaps it's possible that the Moabite king was sympathetic to David because David had some Moabite blood in him. I don't know if he knew that situation. I don't know how well known it was, but David went to him for a reason. And I think we could pause here and go ahead and start applying some of this to our lives. Brothers and sisters, we never know what God is doing in our suffering. We don't. We try. We think we do. We cling to some, some general promises. But we don't know how God is working in our situation. I mean, do you think that Naomi would ever, in her wildest dreams, imagined that God would use her miserable circumstances to preserve a nation or to preserve the parents of David, right? Who would have thought? Friends, God plans out his kindnesses for us far in advance, doesn't he? But we must pass through the valley of suffering as we make our way to green pastures. But there's something else I think we should note about this text. Notice what David said to the king there in verse 3. Because we can see that David's confidence in the Lord had grown. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. I think we can understand this statement as a powerful expression of faith. Especially when we combine it with the Psalms, Psalm chapter 34 and Psalm chapter 57. And we see these expressions of David's faith after his crisis of unbelief last week. Remember Psalm 57 and 34, they basically reveal that David had undergone a personal revival. That after fleeing, he, David had gone on, when he faced a great trial when the temperature was turned up in his life, he started running for his life and he was sinning all along the way. He had backslidden and his sin had left this wide wake as he ran through Nob and through Gath. And now it appears that David had repented from his unbelief and from his fear. Another indication of that is in verse 22 when he says that he has occasioned the death of this whole city. They were killed because David had been there, lying about it. But now David had repented. And David's repentance marked a pattern in his life. We would see David repent again, would we not? But Psalm chapter 57, verse 2, David describes his new confidence in the Lord. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. As you read these two psalms, which are attributed to this period of David's life in the, in the subscription, it's clear that David's trust in the Lord had been renewed, and it was growing. It was strengthening. Isn't that how it often works in our lives? We fail, and then as we repent, we find our faith has been strengthened. Like, oh, I could have trusted God in that moment. That's how we climb our way out of struggles with sin, is repenting. Go to the Lord again and again and recognize, Lord, you are a sufficient refuge for me. I don't need to run to the sinful pleasures of the world. Now David's spiritual condition is marked not by fear and anxiety, but by prayer and by obedience. Brothers and sisters, as I have said many times before, the mark of a Christian is, is not that we don't sin. Christians sin. The mark of a Christian is that we repent. Again and again and again. David was learning the pattern of repentance that would mark his life. And you and I, brothers and sisters, when we turn to Christ, it is through repentance. We do not repent once, but again and again and again. I think we've said it before, believe, repent, repeat, again and again. That's the main difference between David and Saul. They both are sinners, but Saul hardens his heart and continues in rebellion, and David softens his heart in repentance. In the New Testament, the Bible teaches that this is one of the reasons that is so important that you and I be involved in meaningful, rich Christian fellowship within the context of a local church. I'm not talking about casseroles. I love casseroles, okay? That's not what we're talking about here when we're talking about Christian fellowship. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you... Okay, he's talking to brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will trick you. And the very nature of it is that you don't know you're being tricked because you're the one being tricked. Every time we give in a sin, that's how this works, right? That's why we need fellowship. Because it's m- much harder to trick two people than one person. We need one another. God has called you to be your brother's keeper. Oh, that we would be a people who understand and take seriously the danger of sin, so that we would not be, so that we would actually be willing to come alongside one another and exhort one another and encourage one another and even rebuke one another and call one another back to repentance. Repent. You say, you say, repent, repent. Don't you remember Saul? Don't you remember what happened to Saul? He didn't repent. Brother, don't be like Saul. Be like David. David repented and now he's enjoying the blessing of the Lord. One of the ways that we see this, that David was enjoying the blessing of the Lord, is the presence of the prophet Gad. Remember in the Old Testament, the prophet is the mouthpiece of the Lord, and so his presence with David is showing God's favor. God is speaking through, through Gad to David. David has, wherever God's word is, there is blessing. Brothers and sisters, read your Bibles. God is with David and this new kingdom of ragtags. He has left Saul, and he's building a new kingdom. A second section in the text could be called Saul's Rage, verses 6 through 10. It takes up a big section in the text if we extend it on out to verse 19. But there are a number of lessons that we can learn from this very detailed description of Saul's murderous rage. I, I was reflecting today how much time the author of Samuel gives into describing the emotional life of Saul. Our emotional lives reflect our spiritual lives. They're not not to be discarded lightly. We see his murderous rage against David and the priest of Nob. Verses 6-10, through they reveal and they describe a king who, even though he is the most powerful man in the land, he is deeply insecure. Why? Because he was doing it by himself. He had rejected the Lord, and so Saul was on his own. This type of anxiety, whether you are the leader of a land or the the head of a household of one, this type of anxiety is common to the human experience. You will experience anxiety whenever you seek to live your life without God anxiety is the other side of pride where you realize I can't do that I'm not as I'm not capable I'm not enough right I anxious. I can't control this I'm not sovereign I'm not omnipotent I don't know the future oh my goodness what am I going to do right anxiety is frustration that you're not God that's what's happening you can take all the pills you want but that doesn't change the circumstances You see, when we don't depend on God's resources, it does not take much circumstantial difficulty to overwhelm us, does it? Just a hard test. Sometimes, (laughs) I I was in incredible temptation the other day because I was hungry, right? I can't handle it. I need to depend on someone else's resources beside my own. If you do not turn to the Lord in your trouble, anxiety will always follow, Because you are very small and very limited in your knowledge and in your power and in your wisdom and in your moral purity. Anxiety will follow. This is why Paul says be anxious about nothing. This is why Jesus included it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? However, Saul, he is the extreme spiraling case of anxious misery. Since he's hardened his heart... His anxiety has turned to paranoia, and paranoia into murderous rage. You notice how so many times he said, David is seeking, my, he's lying in wait for me. No, he wasn't, right? He's making stuff up. That's what we often do in our anxiety. Verse 6 describes Saul in a shady place. Not doing, literally, not figuratively. He's literally in a shady place. And he has nothing more to do than to brood. Have you been there before? Let's just be honest. You can, we can talk, right? you've been there before, you got nothing to do, your mind wanders and you just go, right? If someone's with you, they get pulled into it. If you're by yourself, you, your mind will just go, won't it, right? Saul is brooding and as king, he pulls people around him to add to his misery. The details given to us in the text highlight Saul's emotional state. First of all, we see that Saul is once again standing with a spear in his hand. Every time we've seen Saul, he's had a spear in his hand. It's become his source of security, like his pacifier. Picture Saul sucking on that spear, right? Or his, or his lovey, his blankie. There are no enemies around, and yet Saul's, and Saul was too afraid to go to Goliath, wasn't he? Yet he's got his spear now. Yet Saul and his anxieties were imagining otherwise. But what's most revealing is his pitiful conversations with his servants who surround him, his inner circle. Once Saul hears about the news of David, he begins fuming at those around him and accusing them of conspiracy and disloyalty. He even shifts gears from there. He uses all the tactics, right? He goes from con- accusing them of conspiracy to manipulation and then on to bribery, right? Who's going to give you the perks? Is David going to give you perks like I give you perks, right? No way. Is the son of Jesse going to land you this job? And then he, sh- then he gives up on all that and just shifts into pure blubbering, right? Verse 8, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son stirred up my servant against me, right? Saul is throwing a royal pity party in a shady spot. You see what he's doing? He is so consumed with himself and his fear, he starts to have a panic attack, and he's attacking everyone around him. Saul does what you and I so often do when we're neglecting the Lord and then frantically trying to build our own kingdoms and then realizing that we don't have the resources. We throw royal pity parties. We may try to manipulate others with self-centered complaining. We try to drag others into our misery so often. That's what self-pity does. It wants attention. Richard Phillips, one of my favorite preachers, he captured this dynamic well when he said, Saul could be comfortable only if those around him were sorry for him and entered into his warped conspiracy. It's the mark of insecurity. Brothers and sisters let us learn from King Saul's example rather than his experience. Whenever you and I seek to live life without depending on the resources of the Lord we are going to end up blubbering anxious messes and we'll make all the people around us miserable. That's not God's intention for your life. But Doag didn't mind. Doag saw this as an opportunity. You remember Doag the Edomite? We met him last week lurking in the shadows at the temple in Nob. Well, here he is. And he feeds into Saul's pity by telling him everything that he saw at Nob. When Saul hears how Ahimelech the priest gave assistance to David, he summons him and all the priests, and after playing God, he acts as the judge and the law and the jury, and he issues a death sentence. For an innocent priest, he called for him to be murdered along with the entire family of priests. Even Saul's henchmen are unwilling to carry this out. They refuse him. That's how strong their conviction was. They saw it as an atrocious order, and so Doag, the foreigner, steps in, and he does not mind doing the king's dirty work. Verse 18 and 19 shows that at Nob, 85 priests were murdered, and he went on to butcher the entire city. Women, children, infants. We have all three described for us, including all the animals. Okay, what do we make of this? Well, first of all, I think we should again reflect on the spiraling nature of sin. Look how far Saul has come. And as the author of Samuel often does, we can see irony here. Do you remember First Samuel chapter 15, which is where the Lord rejected Saul for disobedience? Do you remember Saul's sin? He refused to devote an entire village of Amalekites to destruction. He refused to kill them. Do you, do you see the irony here? There he refused to obey the voice of the Lord by not killing an entire city, which justly was deserved as we talked about then. And yet here he doesn't hesitate to slaughter God's people, specifically an entire village of priests. Oh, how far sin can lead you down the road of destruction. How do you know which sin is going to set you off down a spiraling web of despair. How do we know? We see Saul murdering the people of God, and I believe at this point that we should recognize Saul as a satanic instrument of destruction, one that the Bible describes as an antichrist. Now, as we spoke about before, in First John chapter 2, the author of John says that, he says, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, or you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. That's how we know it is the last hour. So I believe, as I've said before, in a final capital A Antichrist, like a big one coming later. But we have seen a pattern of many little a Antichrist all the way since the beginning. Perhaps even starting with uh, Cain. Perhaps. But John makes it clear that there are many Antichrists that have already come. Antichrists we see throughout the scripture are marked by a murderous passion to crush and destroy the people of God among other things. Like Pharaoh, who murdered Hebrew babies, or like Herod, who also murdered Hebrew babies, Saul falls into that same satanic pattern of the Antichrist tradition that continues now to this day. And the pattern did not end with Herod or with Nero, but it continues. And we should understand that it will continue. One of the major lessons that we learn from this period of David's life is that, as we mentioned last week, that though the life of godliness is good and rich, it is not safe. Jesus was not safe. The apostles were not safe. He promises safety later. Eternal safety. Jesus made no promises of bodily safety. John fifteen twenty, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, tell me, church. They'll also persecute you. It is the life of a Christian. But this is not a reason to fear. Do not hear me wrong. This is still no reason to fear. Because the promise of Antichrist is no reason to flee, for, flee to gath or stand with a spear in your hand, but it is a call to trust in the Lord that slays giants with children. So let's move to a third scene in this text. And that is God is sovereign over evil. Verses 11 through 19. It's hard for us to imagine the brutal slaughter that took place in these verses. An entire city, including women and infants and children, butchered with a sword. Why didn't God step in and spare these lives? Where was God in all this? That's so what the media asks in major tragedies. Where is God? The answer is he's right where he was right where he is now, seated on a throne, ruling wisely over the affairs of the world. We can't miss the Lord's sovereign hand even in this carnage. This slaughter is actually the fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy. If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, you remember Eli? Priest Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, right? God killed them all, basically. God told Eli, because of the wickedness of his family, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. He's referring to the house of priests, the family line of priests. So here we see God actually fulfilling his word through the hands of an Antichrist. God do that? Now, this does not in any way justify or condone Saul or Doeg's evil actions. They will be judged for them. But think of what an incredible comfort this is to us, who are on the other side of the Antichrist's venomous plans. What a great comfort this is to us, Because God is so sovereign. He is so in control that even when God's enemies oppose his kingdom, all they can do is help him win, right? All they can help God do is bring his plan to pass. And they don't even know they're doing it. Like that is the ultimate picture of victory, right? (laughs) Like that is the picture of sovereignty. We so often expect God's sovereignty to be one-dimensional and simple. like fix Emma, right? We expect it to be like, okay, you can do this, so just just do it. But it's not like that. It's multi-dimensional. It's complex. It is the mind of an omniscient God. It's not that surprising that we don't understand, is it not? So why would we expect to grasp the sovereign working of God's hand in our lives immediately? Satan intends for you to be destroyed. He intends to destroy you through the suffering that you've experienced in your marriage. Perhaps through betrayal, or abandonment, or adultery. He intends for you to be destroyed in the darkness of grief, or through bitter disappointment. But that is his express purpose but the sovereignty of God means that God is sovereign over all of this evil. Do you remember what Joseph told his brothers confidently? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Do you see how much confidence this gives us even as we face evil? The only thing the Antichrist can do, the only thing that Satan can do, the only thing that the enemies of God can do, is help build the dark platform and set the stage for God to show off his majestic, resplendent, stupendous, majestic sovereignty. You want an example? Just think of the crucifixion. Don't you think on that day there was like a small party in hell? Don't you think on that day, Satan smiled and celebrated? Don't you think that killing God would be at the top of the plan for Satan? Look what it accomplished. The defeat of Satan. The redemption of billions of souls, including some of the people who killed him. What more could be done to thwart God? The slaughter at Nob reminds us that all God's enemies can really do is to prove the truthfulness of God's word. And if that's what his enemies are going to do, then you and I can trust him in our suffering. Can we not, church? We need the example of the slaughter at Nob to give us confidence in our sufferings tomorrow. Because you can understand Nob, but you're not going to understand your suffering tomorrow. So we live by faith and not by sight. Faith that this happened and that God is working and not by sight for what is ahead. But this brings us to the final section of this text, which is safety with the king. Verses 20 through 23, safety with the king. Now David is far removed from this bloody scene until the only remaining survivor... Abathar, arrives and tells him what has happened. In verse 22, David seems to claim responsibility at least on some level for this slaughter. I don't know if he's claiming moral responsibility or, or casual responsibility. But either way, I think this should be a reminder to us. We don't sin in a vacuum. We, we think that our sin only affects ourselves but it doesn't. We don't sin in a vacuum. Other people, usually, most often, the people that we love the most are the ones who are the most affected by our sin. And what a great warning this should be to us. We can never tell how our sin today will pour out its consequences on those around us. You think David would have acted differently if he had known a whole village of children was going to be slaughtered because of his unbelief? But that's not the main point of the text. That's a side note. Because verse 23 reveals that something has happened to David's confidence. He has boldly asserted now that Abathar can stay with him. Right? He's saying, verse 23, that he will be safe. It must be, as I said before, that during David's personal revival, that he had regained confidence in the Lord. Which means that now he had new confidence in God's purpose for his life. To make him king of Israel. He clearly had forgotten this because he was so afraid before. And as the Lord's anointed one, he now offers temporary salvation to others who are fleeing from a world of sin. And I think that David's invitation here points us to the saving work of Christ. This is no accident. This story is dripping with parallels, which means that God has sovereignly been working. He orchestrated these events in such a way to point us to a Savior. Let me quickly point out to you a few of these ways that this text points us to Christ. You can make these connections. Just as David's kingdom began with a ragtag band of sinners, so too Christ's followers were nothing but a ragtag bag of tax collectors and sinners. Just as David took special care to be sure that his parents were cared for, so too did Jesus make provision for his mother while on the cross. Just as all the children in Nob were slaughtered, just like Pharaoh slaughtered children, was not Jesus born into a time where children were slaughtered by Herod? And most of all, Just as David was able to protect Abathar and provide him temporary salvation and salvation for those who ran to safety with him, so too is Jesus Christ a refuge for those who hide in him. I'm most compelled by this final example and this example of the ragtag band in verse 2. These distressed, anyone distressed? These debtors, those who are bitter in soul. Whether it be because of their own sinful decisions or the sinful decisions of others or life in a fallen world, these outcasts had had enough. They had had enough of the world. They had tasted what the world had offered and they found that it was bitter. It was fool's gold. It was fleeting. The call of the kingdom of heaven is for all who have had enough of life in the kingdom of Saul. Life lived by the spear. Friends, have you been chewed up and spit out by the world? By your sin? Have you bought into the lies of the world only to find that they can't really deliver? I have. So the call of Christ is to sinners, ragtag sinners like you and me. Christ calls sinners and refugees, those who are bitter of soul, to come to him, to forsake the fleeting evil pleasures of this world, to forsake the temporary sense of security, and to follow Christ. Jesus calls for us to come out of the world, into a world that is dangerous for a time, and to follow him, which is far better. And he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. For whoever would save his life must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Our text, if you remember, began with David gathering a strange ragtag band of followers. And as the text closes, we see that this new kingdom is already starting to take shape. David was the commander of them. But notice as we close in this cave, three figures in these last few verses that are highlighted. And they represent our greatest need. Of course, we have David the king. But we also have Gad the prophet. And we have Abathar the priest. Praise God for the true king, the son of David, the one better David, who himself is prophet, priest, and king. He is able to pay for your sins, to give you God's word, and then rule in your heart salvation safety is only through Jesus Christ turn from your sins turn from the pleasures of the world whether you are a believer in Christ and you you feel that lingering pull like I do or whether you don't know him turn to him there's safety in the son of David let's pray to him now father God we give praise and all glory to Jesus Christ, the son, the true, the son of David, and the seed of Adam, who's crushed the head of the serpent. Give us patience as we wait for this final victory, and let us be faithful as we trust you. No matter what circumstances may come, no matter what carnage the antichrists inflict, help us to trust you, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.